The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There are people who are covered under FISA who are overtly acknowledged employees of foreign governments in the United States, They're not Americans, they're foreign nationals who came to the United States to be on the payroll of a foreign government here openly acknowledged. That case to me is very, very different in terms of the stakes for privacy than the case of an American citizen or a lawful permanent resident of the United States who maybe has had some interactions with a foreign government that that the FBI thinks are suspicious or concerning, uh, but whose status as an agent of a foreign power is very much contested. That kind of case is where you would want intense scrutiny intense review because that person is both an American citizen or a lawful permanent resident who has these heightened constitutional interests, but also because the status is in question. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 29th, 2021. Adam Klein was, until the other day, the chairman of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, known colloquially as the PCLOB. In that capacity, he had the opportunity to do something that no one has ever really done before as an outsider, review a bunch of FISA applications, that is, applications for electronic surveillance under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The result is a white paper, a look behind the FISA curtain that he published before leaving office and about which he wrote a lawfare post. He joined me before a live Lawfare audience to talk about the applications, the review, the white paper, and the Lawfare article, and how the FISA process could stand improvement. It's the Lawfare podcast, June 29th, Adam Klein looks behind the FISA curtain. So, Adam, I want to start with the nature of the institution that you ran until last week, as well as the somewhat unusual nature of the white paper that you put out. What is the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, and uh, what does it do? Thanks, Ben. Uh, thank you for having me here. Excited to be to be back doing things for Lawfare. As you said, I've had a, I guess, a decade-long connection to lawfare at this point, and uh, looking forward to doing a lot more going forward. The board, uh, or the PCLOB, unfortunately, as its acronym goes, uh, is a pretty unusual beast within the menagerie of government agencies. To go back and excavate its history a bit, I think, will show why it has these attributes. Everyone here will probably remember the 9-11 Commission report. That was the 10-member bipartisan commission that Congress created to investigate the 9-11 attacks. Uh, In 2004, it published its final report with 41 recommendations, and the report was widely regarded as, I don't think this is hyperbole, as a masterpiece of 
government investigation, government writing, uh, and the commissioners were very successful in getting their recommendations implemented. Those included things like creating a director of national intelligence to sit atop the, the sprawling intelligence community and get the agencies to work together. Uh, it included creating a national counterterrorism center to fuse information from different sources within the executive branch of the intelligence community uh, and various other recommendations whose general thrust was to strengthen the counterterrorism response. And so the commissioners looked at all of these recommendations and said, we've created a stronger government on the one hand, we need to create additional checks on the other hand to ensure adequate oversight. So one of those additional checks was creating a board within the executive branch to oversee this suite of new post 9-11 counterterrorism powers. There are a couple uh, wrinkles there. Uh, one of them is that the board is in the executive branch, yet we are also independent. And that's a tension that constitutional lawyers can talk about until the cows come home. I won't get into that here, but it is relevant for how we did our work when I was on the board, uh, because as an executive branch entity, you have access to privileged information and other information that Congress has difficulty or simply is not able to get. Uh, and so that enables us, among other things, to give advice to agencies about things that they are thinking about doing, but have not committed to doing yet. Those things would be considered deliberative and Congress ordinarily wouldn't have access to them. But because we're in the executive branch, we can see them and give advice. And so it's an unusual entity. We have five members, uh, three, no more than three from one political party. We have, we, uh, the board has access to clearances, classified information and so forth. So it can really get into the guts of some of the most sensitive programs that the government undertakes. And this paper is a classic example of that, I think, in the kind of highest tradition as imagined of the PCLOB. So the inspector general comes out with a report and a progress report, both slamming the FBI for their handling of one FISA application and some renewals, and then another set of 20-some-odd FISA applications and says these are all riddled with factual errors, and Congress can't easily investigate this because you have all kinds of privilege issues. Now, the House and Senate Intelligence Committees can be pretty aggressive and get in there if they want, but the privilege issues just don't arise with you guys, and so you decide to look at a bunch of FISA applications and satisfy yourself that these are being handled appropriately. Is that a fair account of the instinct behind the project? That's fair. I think it might also be helpful to explain why we're different than an IG and how having the board come in into an area after an IG has already dug into it can actually be helpful rather than duplicative. So an IG will go in and, and do case-specific investigations looking at all the facts of a particular case, sorting through reams of documents and getting to ground truth in one case and finding out whether there was waste, fraud, abuse, or other malfeasance or mistakes within with that particular matter. And of course, they can replicate that over a large number of matters, but that's generally their job. It's case-specific compliance-type investigations. Our board is completely different. We're not case-specific compliance cops to go and slap people on the wrist if there was a mistake made in one case. Our job is to, or the board's job is to give high level strategic judgment about whether a program is generally functioning effectively, if it's balancing privacy and civil liberties with the security needs, 
in an, in an enlightened way and how that balance can be improved. So it's the 30,000 foot view instead of the 200 foot view. Um, and so that's why when an IG goes in somewhere and says that they're seeing repeated problems with something, it raises the question, is something systemically out of whack here as opposed to having a, f a few specific instances of error? So your answer to that, to, to go in and, and kind of look at a bunch of FISA applications seems to me to be exactly the right one. But there's an oddity or, or two oddities of the P-Club structure that I want to poke at a little bit that to some extent complicate this project. The first is that the P-Club by its statute is restricted to counterterrorism matters. Uh, whether it should be or not is an interesting question because privacy and civil liberties issues don't only arise in the counterterrorism context, but it is. And the issues that the IG raised about the FISA process come up in the context of counterintelligence matters, specifically as they crash into political campaigns. So I guess my, my first question in this regard is, are you looking at a sample of cases that is a representative of the category of problems that the IG flagged, B, maybe has significant Venn diagram overlap, but it, we should just kind of keep in mind that there's similarities and differences, or C, that are likely to be so different that if you find stuff is working pretty well, it doesn't necessarily say very much about the IG findings uh, one way or the other and vice versa? Sure. Uh, just looking at the numbers, the first set of applications that the IG wrote about, I think there were, this was from the IG's public memo, there were 29. And we were permitted to say publicly that we received 19 of those 29. Um, and so that's actually a pretty significant percentage of the overall set that the IG reported on. And of course, we only requested applications from counterterrorism matters. Now, I should caveat that the, that the board's jurisdiction is um, programs, policies, et cetera, related to efforts to protect the nation against terrorism. So there is some, I hate to use this word, but penumbra of additional authority to look at things that are relevant to counterterrorism programs, even if they don't directly arise in the context of a counterterrorism program. Uh, but, but more to the point, when you're looking at a, at a, at a program or a system within the intelligence community or one of the other national security agencies, it's very rare that that is only used for counterterrorism and nothing else. And so some of the other FISA authorities that the board has looked at, NSA collection programs or analytical programs that the board has looked at, these things tend to be used for multiple purposes. And it's obvious why that would be the case. If you create a snazzy great tool, or if you have a snazzy great authority, you're going to want to use it for as many challenges as you can. So the upshot is that for a board that looks at the systemic high-level balance in a program, once you get in the door, you're pretty much able to do your job with the authorities that you have, uh, at least for those programs. So the second uh, structural question is the P-Club is a board. It's a board of five people. This white paper that you released is, I think, unique in the history of the board, that it's a white paper of the chairman and explicitly says on the front of it, it doesn't represent the views of the board or the other members. 
why did you do it that way? Frankly, when I saw it, it gave me a little bit of concern that it was either going to come off as, you know, Adam Klein, chairman gone rogue kind of thing, or that it, you know, reflected um, some kind of disagreement among the members. Why was it structured this way as a as a sort of individual work product of one member rather than a report of the board itself? Sure. So uh, first, I'll just say that Congress intentionally, quite, quite intentionally created a five-member board with the intention, and with four part-time members, I should add, who, who by virtue of being part-time, bring their outside expertise and interests to the agency. And in doing so, I think its, it's clear intent was to have a diversity of views and a diversity of interests. And so you have some people who are more interested in technology, people who are more interested in law, people who are very focused on the, the privacy and civil liberties side of the equation, other people whose expertise lies more on the national security side of the balance. Uh, so a diversity of views is built into our statute. Uh, we requested these documents. That was not a unanimous vote. This has been publicly noted. Um, my view was that this authority is squarely at the core, it's FISA, and it's used for counterterrorism, squarely at the core of our jurisdiction. We saw two IG reports finding significant problems in the process. And at that point, that's a place where we can step in and say, are there levers and knobs that we can turn? And excuse me, you said that was not a unanimous vote? Right, to request to request the documents. Yeah. I don't mean to ask you to speak for people who obviously disagreed with you, but what's the argument against that view? Yeah, I kind of hesitate to ventriloquize others. I think I would say... Uh, there was a lot of political controversy around the Carter Page FISA and other issues related to FISA you know, about a year and a half ago. You, you wrote a lot about those things. Many other people on Lawfare wrote about them. Um, and look, I understand that, that there are very strong feelings about those politicized aspects of this debate. In my view, we as an expert technocratic board should be able to go into an area that has been clouded by politicized controversy and cut through it in a technical way. Yeah, what on earth is the board for, if not that? Exactly. And ultimately, the proof is in the pudding. And I would encourage people to get the white paper, download the white paper, which is linked in the Lawfare post, and read it for yourself and see if you can detect a political valence there. I'm quite confident that you can, uh, because that's not our job, right? We have you know, elected representatives and others who appropriately are, are practicing politics on a day-to-day -day basis. That's their job. They are representatives. Uh, but we are a technocratic expert body that should be outside of politics. And when we have an area that's so important, where there are obvious problems and where, to some extent, the political debate has prevented uh, that technical, those technical solutions from emerging, that's where we can come in in a neutral, apolitical manner and help. And I think uh, if you look at the recommendations that are proposed in the white paper, they demonstrate how we can provide that value. Um, in terms of, of other members' level of interest in this project, um, I'll also note that this is all happening during COVID. All members had the opportunity to review the documents, but I'll concede that it was a very time-consuming process uh, for me and, and Julissa Milligan, who was my counselor at the board uh, and also an excellent national security lawyer, uh, to go in and to review hundreds, if not thousands, of pages of these classified documents in a skiff during COVID, and then obviously to write to write this uh, a fairly lengthy paper and shepherd it through a, a classification review process. Uh, and so members obviously have different interests and not everyone you know, was able to make that time commitment during the pandemic. 
and people work on other things and that's entirely appropriate. So what'd you find? You looked at all the paperwork surrounding 19 uh, FISA applications. That is an extremely rare thing to be able to do. Uh, in my, I have been covering FISA matters since 1995, and I've only ever seen one FISA application or one and some renewals associated with it. These are highly carefully guarded documents, and the files that underlie them are even more carefully guarded because they're not even shared with, you know, outside the executive branch. So, you know, you got a real peek behind the curtain here. Uh, how bad is the problem? Uh, so I think it's, it's, I think that what you said is very helpful. I think we should also note that Congress typically doesn't even get to see these applications. And of course, Congress is the most important overseer of the intelligence community. They're the ones who control the budget. They control the authorities. And of course, they are elected to represent the American people and be their voice and their eyes on these programs that the public and the press ordinarily don't get to see. Um, and so, yes, it was a very rare opportunity. We also got some a, a, a trove, really, of interesting materials related to all the oversight that the department does about dozen uh, over FISA applications in FBI field offices and elsewhere. So we were able to get a pretty high level view across the, the department, across the FBI of the FISA oversight that's going on, where the energy and resources are being invested and what kind of things they're finding um, as they look through all of these applications. Um, so in terms of what did I find, I think one thing that an outsider coming in to look at something that is very cloistered and closely held can do is just provide a fresh set of eyes. Uh, because sometimes, sometimes things that people inside the process take for granted will be surprising to someone who, who, is, who is not inside the process. And so to me, some of the most valuable things that I gleaned from this review were general observations and things that I found unexpected and surprising. And some of those were just the way that information is presented in these applications. They are very long. They tend to be very long. They, complain, they contain an absolutely massive amount of information. Uh, and to some extent, that's appropriate. Right? We're very concerned, um, especially in the wake of, of some of these issues that have arisen, uh, that the government be meticulously accurate and complete and that it provide all relevant information. And that's fine. But when information is presented in almost uh, a torrent for the reader, it's very difficult to, to conduct critical analysis of those facts that are being thrown at you Right, like, a, like coming out of a fire hose. Uh, and so some of the suggestions that I made in the white paper are that the drafters and the court, to the extent that it finds this helpful, of course, it's independent and makes its own judgments, organize information in these applications in a way that doesn't just simply throw it at the reader in a, in a linear fashion, but that helps you analyze why, are we, why do we think this person is an agent of a foreign power? What are the most important facts? How do we weigh those facts? How do they relate to other facts presented in, in the course of conduct that we're talking about here? Uh, and so the purpose there is to help not just the judge engage in critical analysis of this, but also the writer, because how you write relates to how you think and vice versa, right? And so the point is to facilitate critical analysis, critical thinking, uh, some of the things that maybe were missing in the applications, uh, in a particular Carter Page application that the Investor General, Inspector General reviewed. There's several big ideas in that answer, and I want to unpack them a little. 
The first is this idea of a torrent of information. One of the complaints about the Carter Page FISA was that, yeah, there was a lot of information, but a bunch of it wasn't true. Did you emerge from your review of these 19 applications with concerns about the integrity of the information that the department on the FBI's behalf was presenting to the court, or by and large, was your, I mean, from the from your writing about it, you seemed primarily concerned that it was hard to prioritize what was particularly important versus what was unimportant, understanding that the Carter Page FISA was a counterintelligence matter, it wasn't within the subject of the white paper. Did you emerge from this inquiry with with a sense that the 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 sort of factual errors and carelessness that the department was the inspector general was finding in that incident was a generalizable pattern or that by and large the problem was really a a problem of information prioritization so to to my mind actually that second one is very important uh, because i think arguably uh, the problem that 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 some people saw in the carter page file was confirmation bias this is just a normal human impulse to see what you expect to see and not see what you don't expect to see and a good process in a setting like this will force you to really challenge your own assumptions i think renewals illustrate this well you talked about renewals a bit and the problems with the renewals in the Carter Page FISA, which were discussed in the IG report. You would think, as, a, as an outsider, that a renewal application is going to be all about whether we need to keep doing this. And it will feature that question, because that's really the question before the judge. We've been doing this for one period, for two periods now, for three periods. Do we need to keep doing this? What have we learned from, from those first three surveillances? What haven't we seen that we might have expected? And is this still warranted? In fact, how these renewals are typically structured is the agent takes the old application in its, in its entirety, all, however many pages of it, and plops in new information exactly in the, play, in the part of the old application where, where it would seem to connect to what the old application is talking about. So you have this weird chimera of the original application with new stuff plugged in. And that, that serves certain like, bureaucratic purposes. It makes life easier for the agent in some ways. It may make life easier for the judge in some ways. But what doesn't it do? It doesn't force you to ask the basic question of whether you need to keep doing this in the first place, what you've learned, what haven't you learned, and so forth, right? Did this, the first three rounds confirm our theory of the case? Or does it suggest that we've got something wrong about this person? I think that goes to this issue of how these things are presented actually being quite important to accountability uh, and rigorous scrutiny in this process. So walk us through your basic recommendations. So for those who want to dive deep in this, the white paper is available on Lawfare, as is Adam's summary of the document. But for those who have not read those yet, what is the what, what are the basic takeaways in terms of what you would like to see changed as a result of uh, of this study? Sure. So some of them fall into the category of writing recommendations, like the things we just talked about. Maybe I won't dwell on those here. There's another category that I think are important, which which are about setting priorities, speaking very generally here. What are we spending our time doing 
whose rights are we protecting and are we, are we using that time and energy well? Ben, you know many of the people in the National Security Division. You've hired them a lot of them over the years. These are the, this is the division of the Department of Justice that works on counterterrorism, counterintelligence, foreign agents registration, and other things like that. And uh, one set of, of people, one set of attorneys there, works on oversight of FISA and intelligence processes. And that's a critically important function, right? This is not open to public scrutiny. Congress's access is limited. So internal oversight is especially important because there aren't these additional people shining a light on it. And they're very scrupulous uh, lawyers there. They're very talented people, but their time is limited. And the question is, how are we going to allocate their time? Uh, so in my view, there are things that we can do to make sure that their time is being used where it really matters for privacy. But to do that, you need to shift that time away from other things. So to give a couple examples of that, um, there are people who are covered under FISA who are overtly acknowledged employees of foreign governments in the United States. They're not Americans. They're foreign nationals who came to the United States to be on the payroll of a foreign government here openly acknowledged. That case to me is very, very different in terms of the stakes for privacy than the case of an American citizen or a lawful permanent resident in the United States who maybe has had some interactions with a foreign government that, that the FBI thinks are suspicious or concerning, uh, but whose status as an agent of a foreign power is very much contested. That kind of case is where you would want intense scrutiny, intense review, because that person is both an American citizen or a lawful permanent resident who has these heightened constitutional interests, but also because the status is in question. Can I try to make this very tangible to people? So it is a matter of public record at this stage that we had coverage of Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak at the time of the Michael Flynn conversations. Uh, this has been A, publicly reported, and B, was a feature in the indictment of Flynn. So assuming that that took place under FISA, which uh, I think it probably did, this would be an example of exactly what you're talking about, right? The Russian ambassador is, uh, there's no question that he's an, he, he isn't an agent of a foreign power. He is the personal representative of the foreign power in the United States. This does not require a great deal of Justice Department review. Is, is that a good example compared to, say, Carter Page, where the facts and his status are very disputed? Is that a, a fair account of what you're describing here? Yeah, without, right, without, you know, commenting specifically on that, I don't have any personal knowledge of that, but I don't, I also don't know what the classification status of, of surveillance, potential surveillance in that case would be at this point, notwithstanding the fact that it, it's been pub widely reported on. Yeah, I think it was even included in, it was included in indictments. I don't, I, I, okay. I, I think the, right. the, the fact that there was coverage is, is, certainly no longer classified. Whether it was sure. under Pfizer or not, it depends, I think, geographically on where he was. Sure. So hypothetically, right, the, the employee, the openly acknowledged employee of a foreign power in the United States, someone like that, uh, that person's privacy interests are relatively low. And there's no question that that person's status qualifies for coverage under the target. Now, I want to be clear um, that there are still privacy interests at stake there, even if they're not the interests of the target. Any collection that's happening in the United States, even if the target is a, is a clear foreign power agent of a foreign power, 
has the potential to incidentally collect communications of Americans on the other side. And of course, you want to make sure that you have the right facilities as the statutory jargon, but the right, say, phone numbers, hypothetically, targeted, and that there aren't errors there that lead you to collect American communications by accident. So there is still oversight that needs to happen, but it's a fundamentally different kind of oversight than you need in a situation like the Carter Page application, where it's an American citizen whose status is contested and is questionable. Okay, so I, I'm afraid I interrupted you. You were giving a kind of overview of your recommendations. Sure. And so there are some other ways I think that time can be shifted to more useful, more useful endeavors. Um, one example is um, Section 702. I'm not sure how much people here know about that. But in short, it's a type of surveillance that takes place here in the United States on electronic communications, but the targets of, of the surveillance are overseas. And it's a, publicly described as a quite fruitful program for the United States. But remember that the targets are all foreign nationals who are located overseas. So their privacy interests are, again, not the same as those of an American citizen anywhere in the world or of a lawful permanent resident who's here in the United States and does enjoy significant constitutional protection. Um, yet the National Security Division, that select group of attorneys uh, in, in that office who are doing oversight, expend a significant amount of time reviewing a very large number of targeting decisions under Section 702. And so that's another area where potentially there's a there's low-hanging fruit of effort that can be freed up to do much more intensive review of things like FISA applications targeting American citizens or lawful permanent residents in the United States, where your civil liberties interest is really very high. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains 
more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And I want to, can I just give some credit to the Justice Department here quickly? Um, there have been significant changes since the, these kerfuffles with the Inspector General in how they oversee these applications. And there, one very important one is that now DOJ is going in after the fact and looking for omissions in a significant number of applications. And I think you all can intuitively appreciate this. Looking at a list, a list of facts and checking off that each fact that you see has some document to support it can be time consuming, but it's, it's, a, it's an achievable task that fundamentally may not be that difficult. Looking for omissions, trying to find that and prove that and disprove that negative is much, much more time consuming because you have to go through all of the available information in a case, uh, the entire potential universe of facts that could potentially bear on the application. Uh, and we found out during this process 
that DOJ in a, in a period of about one year after these IG findings did those completeness reviews for 95 FISA applications. So that's a huge amount of time. I can only imagine that it was thousands and thousands of hours of these highly specialized attorneys. Uh, and so they deserve credit for that. That's a, that's a major contribution to the credibility of this process. But if that's going to keep going, that time has to come from somewhere else. Right. Let's go to audience questions. The floor is yours. To ask, do you think that your proposed summary memoranda in the government's official request to the FISA would change the way the act, or do you think it would make preparing the report, those preparing the report and suppositions more thoroughly? Uh, that's a great question. And what, what the questioner is referring to is a suggestion that I made that these summary memos, which are about a page, uh, and a very concise summary of the key facts of the case. Uh, these memos are currently used as a sort of bureaucratic accompaniment to the, to the very thick applications that all the people who have to sign off on it up the ladder in, in DOJ can quickly look and see what it's all about. Uh, and to my mind, that's actually a, a pretty helpful, helpful aid. Uh, but I think it's more than that. When you have a summary in front of you, you can start reading this massive application as a judge or as a staffer at the FISA court or as an overseer like I was with questions in mind, with a sense of what is important already in mind. And having just read through 19 of these things, uh, when, you're, when you're confronted with this massive application and a stream of facts, all you can do at first is desperately try to pluck out those that are most important from this massive information that is being put in front of you. And only after very, very close reading can you start to extrapolate the interrelationships between these different facts, figure out what's important, figure out what's actually doing the work, which pieces of information are decisive for the government's showing and which aren't. And so being forced to summarize not only should help the, the, the agent who's preparing it think, think about the case, but should help the reader approach the application itself ready to do critical analysis. Uh, and fortunately, these things already exist. And I found them to be quite good, actually. Um, the issue is that they're not currently part of the application that is sworn by the agent and then presented to the court on which the government bases it's showing. Um, so I think that would be an improvement that should be pretty easy to do. Um, and I also think that the app, that these summaries should highlight any significant privacy issues that arise or, or novel technical uh, moves that the government is making to execute the surveillance potentially so that both people in the DOJ hierarchy, but also hopefully recipients at the court can quickly identify those. Do we have a sense of why these are not being done? I mean, I I was actually quite surprised that, you know, when the government files a brief, it normally files a brief, the first section is summary of argument, right? Where it it identifies what it considers to be the most salient and important facts and how those facts interact with case law. Before that, often there will be a statement of the case, which is an organization of facts, right? Why is there no similar document for a FISA application where you really are firehosing and you have a particular obligation because there's no there's no underlying record that the court has and there's no opposing party. So you're under a particular obligation to give all the facts. Where does the idea that you don't summarize or prioritize those come from? 
Yeah, and that's that was the question that I had also. And I, having practiced in the appellate, worked in the appellate courts, that's immediate, immediately where my, my mind jumps as well. That crisp, concise summary of argument that very quickly frames the matter for you and then allows you to read all the rest of the details through the lens of that framing is very helpful. And uh, there is some front matter in these applications themselves, but as you saw from the Carter Page one, it, it's not it's not as concise and direct as that summary of argument. And these memos are, these memos that already exist are. Um, now again, I hesitate to ventriloquize for the genuine experts at DOJ who are the stewards of this process. I think one answer that they would give is that um, summary statements um, then become a statement that has to be verified against the underlying information in that fact-checking process that is required for every application. Uh, so I think that would be one sort of issue that, that the people deeply steeped in this process would raise. Um, to my mind, there are pretty easy ways around that, but I am right sympathetic that they are very dedicated to following the rules and are always looking at any potential changes and how it would affect their ability to do that. I would just point out that the DOJ Public Affairs Office does this literally every single day when they put out a press release about a criminal case. They take the indictment and they distill it. They do not write facts that are not in the indictment. They summarize the case very uh, succinctly they give you just facts from the case itself and it functions, but they are making, you know, salience judgments from the giant record in a case about, you know, what you need to know about what happened for so-and-so to get sentenced to whatever he got sentenced to. I think that's right. I just want to make really sure that I'm being fair, fair to them here. They are, these are talented people. They know how to write a summary. Um, and they're certainly capable of doing that. The, re they're, the reason they're not doing it at present is not because they can't do it. Um, I think it's because they are approaching their task through a very conscientious lens of wanting to comply with the existing rules that they've been told to comply with. And those rules include, include absolutely every single fact and leave nothing out. And every statement you make in this application has to point directly back to a source document. And so sometimes you need someone to come in from the outside and effectively give these bureaucracies permission to do something new and something different because they are so conscientious about sticking to the existing rules. And so innovation or even subtle changes can be risky for them. And so, so hopefully that's what this white paper will do, give them some license to seek submit to make some of these changes that, that they might not feel comfortable requesting on their own. The floor is yours. Uh, Adam, this has been really interesting. Thank you. And you started to get at my question a couple of minutes ago, but if you take a, a, a big step back from the work you've done and the commit your committee, can you, uh, you know, do you feel like these are institutions are really adequate to ensure the integrity we want, or do we need some new institutions beyond sort of the, the smaller um, but significant tweaks that you've been talking about? Yeah, and I, that, that's, a, that's a, a really important big picture question. I, I think my we in Washington always tend to focus on institutional change because we are institutional creatures. And so whenever there's a crisis or some kind of debacle, we think, how can we reform the existing agencies and the existing structures? And should we create a new director of this and a new assistant secretary of that? Uh, and so I, I sort of hesitate to go there in this instance. Um, I think by and large, we have the institutions that can do the job. Uh, but I think there are some practices that 
can make a difference if, if, or some principles that if adopted widely across these agencies can make a difference. So one of those is using technology in a sophisticated way to enhance privacy and civil liberties. Uh, and so I'll give an example. Most agencies have some kind of audit or review process when analysts query or search a database of sensitive information. Uh, and you, and these queries are generally recorded, which is absolutely essential. But in some places, and I, I don't think I can give more details here, but AI type tools are being used to identify queries that raise a heightened concern of a privacy and civil liberties issue. Uh, but that's not done universally. And the level of technical sophistication of these audit and control systems is, is widely variable. And it, I think I can safely say that it tends to correlate to the level of technical capability that an agency has and the resourcing that it has for investment in these systems. Um, so that's one way I think with our existing agencies, our existing structures, we can do a lot more to ensure accountability. Um, another one is avoiding confirmation bias and building in ways to avoid confirmation bias within the existing agencies. Sometimes these are simple process tweaks, right? Things like, for example, forcing agents to consider and write up the answers to the, to the, to questions that bear on the need for a renewal. What did we learn the first time? Did it confound or confirm what we believed when we filed this application and so forth? Another one that I suggest in the white paper is using red teams, internal red teams in highly consequential or highly sensitive matters, like matters related to a U.S. citizen who's also involved in politics or a religious leader or, or the media, right? These very sensitive civil liberties laden areas. There should be a red teaming process within the agencies. It doesn't have to slow down the process dramatically where people come in and say, are we, are we confident in this? Are we interpreting these facts the right way? Uh, so those are some, some of the type of changes that I think would really strengthen confidence in this process without forcing us to re rearrange, as people always say in the Washington cliche, rearrange the deck chairs. Sir, the floor is yours. You mentioned earlier that Congress doesn't have great access to uh, FISA requests. And uh, I was wondering if you think Congress is providing the kind of oversight that our country needs. Great question. I mean, I, I'm fortunate, I guess this is the classic Washington insider, if I am that answer, which is I know a lot of these people who work on these committees, they are extremely capable and they do have some very formidable authorities uh, that they that they can use to command respect from the agencies. Um, I think that, that potentially those authorities could be stronger. The 9-11 Commission uh, identified some ways that the Congressional Intelligence Committee's could enhance their accountability that they're able to provide for the intelligence community. Uh, most of those were not taken up. And that's, those are some of the few 9-11 commission recommendations that weren't implemented. But I mean, certainly I think I would be supportive if there are things that the leadership um, on both sides of the aisle uh, think can strengthen those committees. I think absolutely those committees are, are essential or an essential safeguard. They have very talented people. They have a lot of experts. Um, and really, the, the stronger they become, I think the better the system will function. And that's not just in terms of privacy. It's also a matter of efficacy and accountability. Just like the committees in Congress make sure that you know, HUD or HHS are doing their jobs efficiently and using resources well. I mean, we have uh, tens of billions of dollars going into the intelligence community every year. The number, the top line number is, is now public. That's another 9-11 Commission achievement. So you can see precisely how much money we're, we're putting into this. And they need to make sure that we're getting good value for that. Okay, we are joined now by Julian Sanchez of the Cato Institute, who 
I have yanked out of the audience because he always has thoughtful questions and things to say on this subject. So I'm just going to turn over this portion of the interview to Julian. Gosh, I, I would have I would have uh, dressed better if I realized I was going to be press ganged in that way. Uh, Don't worry, it's a podcast, man. <laughs> Julian's wearing a tuxedo. Yes, absolutely, solid gold buttons. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, so I guess it seems like a lot of the back end checks that are built into Pfizer are effectively efforts to sort of compensate for the absence of the mechanism that exists on the criminal side, which is you have this sort of discovery um, and disclosure to the target uh, where you have both the sort of information and incentive to discover uh, problems on the front end and that exerts a sort of disciplinary effect on the whole process. And in the criminal context, that eventual disclosure to the target is at least part of the sort of satisfying the constitutional requirement of reasonableness. So I wonder, is it, is it sort of totally out of the realm of consideration to look at revisiting the presumption, at least in the case of U.S. person targets, that FISA orders are categorically permanently covert? Um, that is to say, if this is something that is, if, it is, if disclosure is constitutionally mandatory in the criminal case, should covertness at least be something that has to be argued for rather than a kind of permanent presumption the government gets by, by sort of dint of the general nature of the investigation? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think let's remember, right, and, and you know this as a, as a great expert in this field, this is an intelligence authority fundamentally, right? And intelligence is a completely different discipline from criminal investigation, right? And the government is entitled to use this authority to go and obtain foreign intelligence information, even if the ultimate use of that information is, is downstream, some distance downstream, as long as the target is a legitimate target under the act. And as long as the information being sought is foreign intelligence information, that then collection is permitted, right? It doesn't have to be, to be used to prevent a crime that's about to occur or to investigate a crime that has already occurred. And so there's some degree of flexibility and nebulousness in the ways that the government is permitted to use this authority that is just fundamentally different. And I would hesitate to trench on that because it's just a key part of the discipline of intelligence. Uh, but as to U.S. persons and, and American citizens, I do think that the calculus is, is just the, 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 way, the interests on the other side of the scale are just weightier than the classic you know, foreign national sent here to spy on the United States and even perhaps openly accredited to a foreign government. And so, you know, potentially, hypothetically, um, if there was some thought given to a, a disclosure obligation for U.S. citizens um, who are targeted under FISA, at least in some subset of cases where ultimately the surveillance doesn't bear out, I think that's something worth thinking about. But again, there are going to be significant operational security uh, concerns here. I mean, someone is not likely to be targeted under FISA if he or she has no affiliation uh, with, a, with a foreign power at all, uh, may not ultimately prove to be an agent. Uh, but remember that the foreign powers are also sniffing around um, and trying to know what we know, figure out what we're interested in. Uh, so you're dealing in an area where the operational security concerns are pervasive, and that's why you need a classified tool here instead of just going to, to courts and getting Title III wiretaps. One of the things I, and I, I thought I encountered in talking with some, some folks at ODNI is, uh, and I wonder if, if this sort of rings true to you, is that, that at some point, the sort of multiple layers of review within FISA, which are sort of touted as part of 
what makes the process so rigorous may give rise to a kind of Kitty Genovese effect. That is that the responsibility is sort of sufficiently diffuse that, you know, someone who's looking at, let's say, a renewal application and they're saying, well, this has been, this, you know, 80 eyes have been on this and it creates a sense that, well, it's not my responsibility if there's some material omission or, or uh, you know, a point is not quite right um, because, well, you know, five other people missed it before I saw it then. Which is not to say that people are kind of consciously shirking, but that people who are part of the process have suggested to me that the, the multiple layers may have this effect. No, you really see that in the in the Carter Page incident where, you know, the nature of the diffusion of the responsibility, it tr- clearly drove the IG's people nuts. They couldn't figure out who to hold responsible for it. And I, every single individual, well, not Kevin Kleinsmith, but, uh, you know, lots of individuals had perfectly reasonable explanations for their own sliver of the responsibility that failed, right? Yeah, and I want to do, let's give credit where due, right? Stuart Evans, one of the very experienced attorneys who was in the Justice Department in the National Security Division at that time, I think was, was one of the few, or if not the only one, who, according to that lengthy IG report, raised repeated questions about the application, about particular pieces of that application. Uh, but it shouldn't take someone making an ex- taking an exceptional step to raise to raise those kind of questions, which is why I think red teaming, internal red team, uh, is an important potential addition to this process, especially where you're dealing with something like uh, a politically affiliated person, a religious leader, a media figure, hypothetically. And I'm using this list because these are the categories that the FBI itself identifies as highly sensitive. And so there's already a category in the bureaucracy that it exists where you could focus in and make sure that you don't get that, 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 that kitty Genovese effect or confirmation bias, um, where you see what you're expecting to see and you rely on the fact that everyone else is also in the process as some kind of assurance, where there is someone who is assigned to be the gadfly. Uh, one last thing, and this is maybe a little tangential to the, what your focus in this paper was. But one of the things I find particularly interesting about the the FISA process is this sort of, it's not totally absent on the criminal side, but this sort of dialogic almost feedback process that occurs before a final application is submitted. So just, just for those of you who don't know what Julian is referring to, the staff of the court has a kind of, this is very un, uh, unlike other uh, judicial processes, the staff of the court will sometimes review a application draft. Uh, they will give feedback. There is a kind of dialogue while applications are being prepared that can sometimes include the judge. This is It's a much more collaborative process between the judiciary and the executive branch than is typical. And the Justice Department has often, as has the court, held this process out as an explanation for why the rate of rejection of FISA applications is so low. And you know, so this, this is somewhat compelling. I say, look, we're not a rubber stamp. We, you don't see the feedback that happens at that stage, the, the things that don't get submitted. And on one level, that's well taken, but thinking in terms of you know, the constitutional law of the Fourth Amendment, in some sense, right, the, the protections that courts provide 
emerged from cases where the a court had to tell the government no. And this is a process where perhaps that happens in private, but the paper trail, right, is an unbroken series of yes. And I wonder whether, and maybe this is, again, uh, more kind of meta than your focus in this paper, but I, I wonder if you got a sense that that process, I guess it creates a situation where you don't end up getting kind of test cases where the court sets kind of hard lines and say, no, this is the kind of case where, you know, no, you don't have, you don't have the authority, you can't do it. So that going forward, there's kind of a set of benchmarks that say, uh, you know, if this is what you're contemplating, the court has already said, no, that's not, that's not Hoyle. In a way that's more binding than, well, the staff told us, the court is not inclined to improve that kind of request at this time. Yeah, I guess I would have just first a couple, adding a couple of facts to the mix here. Uh, one is that the, the court has, has in the past few years, has been providing much more detailed statistics about the applications that it accepts, rejects, accepts after modification, and so forth. Uh, and so what you see is that actually, it's they don't always get to yes, and they certainly don't always start at yes. Um, and so I think that does give some, some increased assurance that there actually is a significant degree of pushback happening there. Um, I will also say that, the, that, that many more FISA court opinions have been published in recent years since the USA Freedom Act and since the Snowden situation. And that is, that is very good. That is very important. I know there's the Supreme Court case that's, that's happening uh, about the, the First Amendment right of access. But even without that right of access, uh, the process itself, as required by law, is putting out many more novel uh, and significant FISA court opinions into the public domain after an appropriate classification review. Um, so that's important, too. Uh, and just to get to the meat of the question, it reminds me of something when I was at the Supreme Court and we would write cert pool memos. These are the memos that tell the justices, advise them on whether they should accept the case or not. Of course, the justices can and often do ignore the clerk's advice. Uh, but the clerk's job is really to highlight whether this is worthy of the court's review. And one word that would pop up in those memos over and over again is fact-bound. This case is fact-bound. And that was not a good, uh, a good word to have applied to your case if you wanted it to be granted, because the Supreme Court's job is not to sift through intricate little facts, and, but instead to set broad outlines in the law. Well, every FISA application is fact-bound, because the law is very clear, the standard is clear, it's not that complicated, the issue is whether the facts meet the standard. And that depends on the intricate, millions of intricate little details in all of these applications. Uh, and so to some extent, in a, in a standard Title I you know, electronic surveillance application under FISA, um, if there's not a novel technology or some kind of novel surveillance technique that's taking place, it's kind of hard to lay down new law because the facts of the next case are going to be different. All right, you get the last audience question, uh, and I'm going to take the actual last question myself. You mentioned in your Lawfare article that the business records law needs updating, that you have a statutory sunset to pre-9-11 uh, language. So I guess that seems like a pretty serious limitation to me. What are the prospects of that being updated? And are there other provisions that are in a similar situation that will need updating soon? Thank you for bringing that up. I think it's, it's an important piece of this that, that I, I, I'm glad is not going to be overlooked here today. Um, so back in March 2020, 
several pieces of FISA fell out of the law. Uh, this one piece called the Business Records Authority, and I can explain more about what that is, was one of them. Others were, were um, permission for the Justice Department to use roving wiretaps against foreign intelligence targets. So people who are chucking their phone, you can quickly switch from one to the other. And that's something that exists on the criminal side and is not that controversial. Uh, there's also um, a provision that allows so-called lone wolf terrorists to be targeted under FISA. That's not something that's been heavily used. Uh, but I think the most important was this uh, so-called business record provisions. And in short, it allows the, the department to go to the FISA court and uh, compel a third-party provider to give records, uh, not content, but records like like th things other than content, um, to give these records to the government so that it can use them for a national security investigation. And just to be clear, if the same thing happens in the criminal side, you can get it with what's called a grand jury subpoena. You don't need an order from a judge. So actually, the level of process on the FISA side is higher than it was on the criminal side. Um, but because of the disputes surrounding FISA emerging from the, from the 2016 election and thereafter, that provision lapsed and reverted to where it was before 9-11. And that was much more restrictive. It's limited to, if you think of these as like the World Trade Center bombing slash Oklahoma City suite of, of, of terrorist tools. So storage facilities, car rental establishments, hotels, things like that. Sort of the 90s era counterterrorism issues. But the broader power that, that was created after 9-11 is now gone. Uh, and in my view, that's a big problem for the government. All right. Last question. What has the response to the white paper been? Uh, you published an article about it on Lawfare. Have you gotten much response to it, either directly or through the Lawfare piece? Yeah, and I, I'm very heartened by it. I think one person called it responsible and therefore incremental which I don't take as an insult at all, right? I, I think incrementalism is appropriate here. We're dealing with a very important set of authorities. I mean, FISA has taken a lot of abuse in the past few years, and some, there have been some big problems. But ultimately, we need a way to monitor the activities of foreign agents in the United States. Everyone knows that we're facing uh, a peer competitor in China and a near peer in some domains, um, adversary in Russia, and that they are aggressive foreign intelligence collectors against the United States. And we need these tools to monitor those are the activities of the agents who are coming here and don't wish us well. Uh, and on the other hand, we've seen that there are also significant civil liberties equities when these tools are used against get potentially to target Americans uh, in the United States. And so this is more an issue of rebalancing than an issue of revolutionizing or discarding something. So to me, incrementalism is no vice in this area. Uh, and I think the, the reactions that I've gotten from experts in the field confirm for me that the white paper achieved its goal of cutting through some of the politicized controversy here and issuing a set of pragmatic recommendations that are, that are genuinely useful to the policymakers on both sides of the aisle. We are going to leave it there. Adam Klein, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing this. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so share us on all the socials, rate us and review us wherever you found us, buy and wear our merch at thelawfarestore.com. 
and talk about us at dinner parties. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.